conflict is so important. I feel like we villainized conflict. Like we're trying to avoid or like minimize conflict. If you're not having conflict, that means that everyone thinks the exact same way. You are probably, yeah, that's scary. That's scarier than having conflict. Um, so Hey. Hi. So I just had the most cozy conversation with Jenny Shaw Spradling. What did you think of it? I was, it felt like a warm blanket. That's why I'm <laughs> wrapping you right now. Yeah, it felt just like this. It was the best. Uh, Jenny's super impressive. So she's the co CEO and co founder of Freewell, which is a social good enterprise. And check out these numbers, guys. They've raised over 5 billion for charity for over 10,000 charities and helped half a million people do that. And they're just getting started. Their goal is to get over a trillion dollars for charity. So very cool. And she goes into exactly what they're doing there. But I feel like my favorite parts of the conversation though were the more, more personal things. She shared what new motherhood has been like for her. Uh, she opened my eyes to postpartum anxiety Uh, We talk about what being a female leader is like and just the work that you need to put in to fill in the various diversity gaps. So she talks about getting to 50-50 in terms of her female employees, which is very, very impressive. So I think y'all are going to really enjoy this one. And thanks so much again, Jenny, for coming on Power Hour. Enjoy. Um, Okay. So I'd love to kick us off here. I myself am an immigrant. I resonate with your parents. And I know that you've described your mom as a hero. I'd love to start there, Jenny. Let's talk about your mom as your hero. How did she influence you? Well, first, thank you so much for having me. I love any opportunity to chat with you, Jen. (laughs) I'm Um, so glad. Yeah. Well, jumping into my mom, my mom is a very special person to me. She... uh, is just the definition of hard work and tenacity. Um, One of the things that I tell my mom is if I accomplish as much in my lifetime as she hers, the only way for me to do that is become president of the United States. I just don't know how else to to kind of do what she's done. Um, When she was growing up, it was the Cultural Revolution in China And oftentimes the oldest child, she was the oldest of five, would have to go to the countryside to, um, you know, kind of pay dues, um, be part of the communist movement that as many people as possible should experience what it is like to farm or be in industry. And she has so many stories from that time, um, like she basically didn't see her parents growing up or her siblings. She lived with her grandma they would wake up before the sun rose in order to gather leaves because that was their only source of fuel for fire. And if you were the first up, you would have a warmer house uh, for the day. Just stories like that that remind me not to take what we have for granted and also makes me realize that the vast majority of what I've been able to achieve today has been luck, not hard work. And so I need to make the most of it. So- Uh, She's absolutely my hero. I love what you're describing about the things that she had to do and all this hard work. 
and how living in the U.S. is so different, right? We have all these amenities now. We have electricity. We don't need to go gather leaves for fire and we can, we can get heated and not have to think about this. I resonate because it makes me think of with reading Sapiens and like the agricultural revolution and how now as more advanced societies, people have more time on their hands, don't need to spend as much time on manual tasks or labor, or women particularly don't need to spend as much time on housework. But the freedom that that gives us also makes us slaves in other ways, like technology now, like we work on computers and you personally have done so, so much, Jenny. And so I kind of just want to offer this different perspective. Just so I grew up in Sierra Leone. I had cold, like didn't have hot water. Um, granted, I was very privileged in Sierra Leone. I didn't need to gather firewood or anything like that, but we all have different experiences and each of them is, is very much valid. So love that take on your mom, but also you're, you're doing quite a lot too. And, um, and there's, there's different forms of hard work with each subsequent generation for sure. I didn't know that um, about your growing up, Jen. That is really, that is, yeah, that is a lot. And damn girl, that's the summary of what I have to say <laughs> about that. Very cool. Aww, I'm glad we can chat and connect more. Back to this notion of immigrant parents. So my mom moved to the U.S. at the age of 60, for instance. And so she She's kind of getting used to the U.S. system, and I definitely have lots of conversations with my parents where I feel like they don't necessarily get my world, where I feel like talking to them about work, for instance, they don't necessarily understand because my mom was an English teacher. My dad is still a doctor in Sierra Leone and, and kind of these traditional paths of medicine or engineering or lawyer. And I know that you talked about having similar experiences and having to educate our parents on uh, just kind of entrepreneurship and what the value of that is. And I've certainly had uh, lots of convincing <laughs> to do for my family as well, where they're just like, what are you doing? You're squandering your life, your potential, your education on this path that's so insecure in their minds. How has that journey been for you? Bumpy is the word that comes to mind. Um, I think that there are times when I feel, you know, I'm bringing my parents closer to what I do and they're able to share in, you know, the joy and the adventure of it. Um, it's absolutely a privilege that they didn't have to get to have a risky career. Um, both my parents have been in their jobs for more than 25 years, you know, that's yeah. the way that they were taught to do it. And, they're, you know, um, my mom teaches, she's a professor. My dad is an engineer and mm -hmm. they're just very traditional career paths that were available to them also in the country that they came from. And here in the U S I feel like we have this really incredible opportunity to participate in capitalism with all its pros and also problems by starting businesses and owning equity and um, mm -hmm. being able to craft our future in, in this way that's a little bit um, more in our control. And I think they like it in theory is the short answer, but I think they still don't understand it. Um, 
as much as I kind of try and, and share kind of the stories and how things are going. Yeah. And how about today? You feel like still there's this level of not understanding despite how far you've come? I think it's, I think it's a little closer. I mean, when there are a few hundred employees on a team, I think they think, oh, that's like a company size that I've heard of before, you know, that, that feels <laughs> somewhat stable. Um, so I think that helps. But at the same time, I think there's still in their minds always this existential risk that next year I won't have a job and I, I don't have a career path and I don't have a boss or a safety net that's going to lift me up if anything happens. And I think that still worries them, understandably, right? Yeah. I'm their kid, yeah. so. Yeah, totally agree. I feel like you. it's hard to get out of that. And it's all about, as we were growing up, what sounded safe and what what was the desired path. And same thing for my parents. It was get a stable job, get your X amount of earnings per year, work for 30, 40 years, have your career, and then you can retire. If you live in a country where you get retirement, that's awesome. If not, make sure you save before. And this is just so different. And in some ways, I think maybe it, maybe it's a bit unreasonable maybe for us to expect our parents who've had all this life experience and been taught one way to just all of a sudden up and change. And I think kind of it's, it's talking to them every day. Uh, for me, what's been super helpful too is just trying to describe what it's like and make it feel real and not up here in the clouds. Mm -hmm. And it's all rooted in love, right? It just comes from a parent's love and wanting safety because they, they've experienced kind of wilder circumstances and want you to have a stable life. So, uh, so totally, totally understand that. Um, they moved to the U.S. and settled in Seattle, correct? Right. What were some of the defining moments you would say growing up? I don't know if you, if you can think to or just there are super clear moments for you that contributed so much to who Jenny is today? Hmm. And it's okay. We can come back to it later. If not, <laughs> why don't you distill your 30 years or so of life right now? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I do think there are some defining moments. I mean, um, the visit, going back to visit China, I think really made an impression on both me and my sister. We would go back every other year. Most of our family is there. So getting to kind of see them. And I remember I have a cousin who's pretty close in age who was going through school at the same time as I was. And we were pen pals because that, that was still a thing <laughs> back when we were growing up. Pal too. Yeah. And <laughs> I would kind of write her and be like, oh, like, I'm so tired. I'd like, three hours of homework after school and then, you know, was part of yeah. this club and ran cross country, blah, blah, blah. And she responds and is like, I had classes until 10 PM and did homework until two. And I'd be like, yeah. oh my gosh, wow, yeah. this is just so wildly different. Um, and I think you see that even today with, you know, um, 996, this idea that folks are working 12 hours mm -hmm. a day, six, six days a week um, in China uh, just this ethos of hard work. Uh, and I think that leaves a really deep impression on me that hard work is, you know, maybe the most morally valuable trait 
in in a person. And I've have a love-hate relationship, I would say, with hard work. I mean, it is probably a thing that helped me get into Harvard, this crazy opportunity that got me every opportunity afterwards. Um, I wouldn't have met the co-founders for my first company if I hadn't gone there. I wouldn't have gotten to go into this fancy consulting job um, if I had gone to the local university. And um, I think that's all great. I, I really appreciate that. And um, I appreciate being able to work 80, 90, 100 hour, hours at, at work and being able to survive that and, and feel like, yes, I can do this. I feel empowered to do this. But at the same time, I think now into my 30s and having a kid, uh, I notice that it creates an incredible amount of guilt um, during a time when I'm balancing, I guess, mom guilt and work guilt, mm. um, when I don't feel like I am putting in more than every other person, you know, in terms of hours. Um, it just is kind of these weird mind games that I don't love. Um, so I'm still working through that, but that is a formative uh, memory that I have from growing up. Oh gosh, so resonate. So for me, the North Star of hard work and really people that inspired me are obviously like people I grew up in Sierra Leone and I, I like people would wake up pre-dawn, go farming, come back, go to school, kids, come back, more housework and then homework and then cook for the family and then sleep, which also gave me this perspective of all I am doing is just Thankfully, I don't have as much housework to be doing. I'm so privileged. I just need to be studying. And then second thing that came to mind for me was my brother who just works so hard and also taught me that really hard work and your integrity are the most important things because no one can take that away from you really. Mm. And he has four kids, uh, works regularly past midnight. I'm not saying this is a good thing that you should be doing this, that one should be doing this, but... <laughs> Uh, whenever I'm feeling tired or anything, I just think about him. Like he's probably working harder than I am. So I, I, should, <laughs> I, should, I should do more here. On the notion of hard work and efficiency, I talked to a couple of mutual friends and they each describe you as Jenny is very efficient. <laughs> so you're not just working hard with Jenny, you're working very smart. I would love to learn from you. Tell me about, and maybe this comes very naturally to you, but how, when you think about your schedule or your day, what tools help you manage efficiency-wise? There are a couple things I do that might be weird <laughs> or thought of as, as odd to other folks. Um, I am a zero inbox person, which... okay. Uh, is inspirational. <laughs> how do you, how do you achieve that? <laughs> Teach me uh, ways. Yeah. So, um, for folks who aren't familiar, zero inbox is basically this concept that at the end of the day, you want your inbox to be empty. So, uh, that either means that you have, you know, responded, deleted, or snoozed, basically, um, put off taking care of this email or message until another time. Um, I find this helpful. And specifically, I find responding to emails the first time that I read them mm -hmm. to be really helpful. I think a lot of folks will read the email, think I have to come back to it. Um, 
and then come back to it and be like, I still don't have time. I'm going to come back to it and just end up coming back to the same email three or four times. Well, that means that you've read that same email three or four times in an effort to do something about it. And I think I do my best to just respond on the spot um, or let them know to ping me again in a week, something like that, um, because it just creates less cognitive overhead for me to think, oh my gosh, I have 50 yeah. emails I haven't responded to. Like it's very intimidating. Um, so that's something I like to do. The, th- the thing you have to accept if you're going to do that is you're going to give a lot of, you know, maybe half-baked answers or uh, make decisions on the spot that you don't have 100% certainty on. And I think a lot of efficiency when you're running a company or really in any role where you have a lot of responsibility and decision-making power is the willingness to make decisions on the spot when you don't have 100% of the information and um, just trusting and having the folks around you trust that if it does end up being a mistake, that you will admit it, correct it, and move on. So um, that's, (laughs) I feel like, a lot of life philosophy wrapped up in in zero inbox, but that's kind of uh, how, how I think about that piece. Um, another thing that's um, maybe a little bit odd and just efficiency oriented is I know multitasking is not in these days, <laughs> but I find that doing things like walking and having a meeting are really helpful to me. And mm-hmm. after I gave birth, I was struggling with postpartum anxiety for a pretty long time. It was like a year after after Merck was born. And so I did a lot of reading and research as to, you know, ways to help with that. Um, I just mm-hmm. didn't feel myself regulated. And one of the things that I remember reading that I found really helpful was just around these um, things that help us like ground ourselves in our bodies and the present moment. Um, because a lot of anxiety is like worrying about the future. Like, is my kid not going to make it? You know, am I going to be off at work? All that sort of thing. Um, and one of those things is walking. Um, there's a natural rhythm to it and our bodies respond to rhythm. Um, which is one of the reasons why it's so easy for a kid to fall asleep strapped to their mom and also is a really great way to regulate, um, as a, as a person. So finding ways to, take instead of a lot of Zoom meetings, phone calls where I can be walking um, and be in nature for a little bit and like regulate along the way. Um, So I feel like this is hacky or healthy multitasking, but Mm -hmm. I find that really helpful too. Um, And uh, yeah, those are just some of the things that come to mind. I totally agree that when you read an email so many times, same with messages, it's just so exhaustingly inefficient and it's just so sad. So I do the same with messages. I won't look at them until I feel like I'm in a space where I can absorb them, respond with the energy I'd like to respond with. Um, and, and so, yeah, I do that with them with emails. I'm not as good, especially with admin emails. When I get an email about a bill or or something of that sort, and I need to do some further work, I'll look at them and then put them on my to-do list and that I'm less efficient with. I love what you mentioned about making decisions with incomplete information. I think that's such a life skill to hone in on. And I also love that you mentioned that it's not always easy and you make mistakes sometimes. And it sounds like that's just something you just take on knowing that you won't always be perfect and you just get the reps in. 
Yes. I did not come out of the womb this way. I am a natural <laughs> perfectionist. I want to be liked. I want, I don't want things to go wrong. Um, and so for all of those reasons, I think this was the hardest transition for me as an entrepreneur mm-hmm. was in the beginning a feeling like I needed every decision to be the right decision because if mm-hmm. I didn't, consequences would be X, Y, Z. You know, I'd make up all these stories in my head. Whereas in reality, it is much more likely that in a startup you die because you aren't making decisions quickly enough. Clear decisions with the rationale that you have for the information you have and you can communicate to your team and you move on. And it turns out that one, um, a lot of the times you will be right with your decision-making, but also two, I think relying on the grace of the people around you. As long as you are very clear about why you made the decision and what information you had at the time, it turns out, you know, people are very gracious and understanding because everyone deals with this stuff, you know, whether it's a small micro decision, my baby is crying, it's the middle of the night, should I go in or should I just wait 10 minutes and see if they'll fall asleep? You know, we are making rapid decisions all of the time. And I think folks recognize that as a leader, you are doing your best and what they want more than anything else is, is clarity. And that's what I learned through entrepreneurship. But it turns out to be very helpful for my personal life to be able to just make decisions and move on. I remember when I was growing up, I would go into a Starbucks and I was like so scared of spending money because, you know, we didn't do that a lot as a family. That I would go and I would just stare at like the beverages and the menu for 15 minutes because I didn't want to make the right choice. Like, uh, what if I get a cappuccino and then, you know, I should have gotten the it's frappuccino okay. instead. I know. Like, and, and that's just so silly. I wasted so much time, you know, mm-hmm. on, on these things. So I would definitely say that's been an evolution for me, but a really helpful life hack. <laughs> no, that's, that is super inspiring. I know that I do this in some aspects of my life where I can be a lot better, where it's this crippling fear of, oh, what if I make the wrong call? But inaction in these cases is likely worse than moving quickly and kind of you can double down back if you make a mistake anyway. In terms of how it's received, I will say I love the fact that whenever I email you, I hear back from you the same day, often within minutes. It feels really great to know that, oh, like Jenny will get back to me. I'll know it's either this or that, and I can kind of make my next moves off of what I hear back from you. So this notion of your people want clarity and as a leader, it's your job to give them that. I definitely feel that with you. So, um, so keep it, keep it going. Uh, Thank you. I wanted, and then I wanted to talk about postpartum anxiety. I didn't realize you had that. Thank you for sharing. How is it different from postpartum depression? Is it more that you're just worried all the time, like you described? Is it more about your kid, about yourself? Yeah, I didn't realize postpartum anxiety was a thing until I had it. Um, And it's very closely tied with postpartum depression, it turns out. So if you have one, the likelihood that you have the other is, you know, higher. Um, I definitely think I had some amount of both. Um, And... It was, it was hard. It was a hard year. Um, and sometimes I find myself struggling to say that because it, it feels a little taboo for the first year not to be all about, I love yeah. my kid and they're 
the best yeah. and I love being a mom. Um, it does not decrease how much I love my kid. Um, he is perfect and wonderful and I'm so grateful for him. Um, but it was a hard year. Um, so the way that the postpartum anxiety manifested for me was um, not being able to sleep, kind of insomnia, just worrying about everything, about work, about the kid, about my recovery, about the strain I was putting on my relationship with my husband, about my husband, mm-hmm. about how I wasn't being a responsive friend and I was being like a um, ungrateful daughter. You know, my parents helped so much. Uh, and I, I felt like I just responded with a lot of stress and, mm-hmm. you know, um, not being the best version of myself. And it would spiral because of course, you know, I'm not sleeping. I'm anxious. The next day I'm a less good version of myself. I'm anxious about being a less good version of myself. So this was, um, really hard. And I don't think I have good tools for kind of how to, um, do it better than, than how I did. Um, the only thing that I can think of is just based on this visceral craving that I had, which was to be around friends and specifically female friends. Uh, and I don't know what it is, but I I do remember reading something which was that for a long time, we as humans would raise kids with community, right? We would just, yeah. our huts would be next to each other and by the time you gave birth, you had witnessed 10 births, you know, because right. girls would be at births at, at the bedside, kind of witnessing and being there and being together. And I think the the feeling that I felt was just this profound loneliness and this desire for company, mm. especially, I think, female energy around me. So yeah, um, yeah for anyone else who might yeah. end up struggling with that, go for it. Do yeah. do the thing that gets you close to the people that you need to be around. Thank you for sharing that, Jenny. I think it really saddens me how, even though we're doing a much better job these days of talking about miscarriages and postpartum depression, and I just learned about postpartum anxiety. Thank you. To your point, we evolved growing up in close-knit communities. We're now more isolated than ever before. Loneliness is at an all-time high and increasing. It's an issue that we are grappling with. And, and it makes sense that, again, you were craving that female energy around you. And it infuriates me to hear the expectation of, oh, but you're supposed to be so happy for this year. You had a baby. How ungrateful of you to not be happy. Well, my life completely changed. I am now not, I'm no longer like taking care of just me. I'm taking care of this other human who's dependent on me. Literally there may be breastfeeding. Maybe I can't breastfeed anymore and I want to stop. And then you even have the taboo around that. Or why are you stopping breastfeeding, et cetera. But it's a huge change. You're sleeping less. You're taking care of someone else. It impacts your community, et cetera. And then on top of that, you're building a company. Um, I know that you have a supportive partner, but I know that it puts strain on both of you. So it's so unrealistic to me, this expectation of, oh, how are you not all happy all the time? And something that we should all be talking about and just kind of burst this bubble. This un- It's kind of like the Disney fairy tale bubble, which isn't, it's not true. <laughs> it's not how it is as a new parent. Totally. And uh, 
I remember there was this moment where I was calculating how much of my waking hours I was spending either feeding my child or pumping. And it was something like a sixth of my waking hours. And it was those sorts of things when, you know, in the abstract, you're kind of just doing it and you don't realize. And it was just a step back moment where I was like, wow, this is a lot of strain on one's body. And a sixth of the time during the day, I'm literally a milking cow. Like that might have some different psychological effect than before when I was spending the same time having deep intellectual conversation with my colleagues or, you know, walking or being with friends. Um, yeah, it's it's very different. And I'm hopeful uh, with opportunities like this podcast, you know, more folks are talking about what that experience could be like. Yeah. And mm-hmm. just being there for each other, right? As women, as humans, as men and women, asking really, how are you? It's okay. Like I know X number of other people who've been through it. I love this notion that whatever you're going through, other human beings have for sure gone through it. There's almost 7 billion of us today on the planet and just learning and feeling seen and heard from each other's experiences is such a powerful thing. Yeah, totally. On on this notion of sharing the load with your partner, I know that thank goodness we're born and living in today's age. It's definitely not perfect, but it's way better than the past. Working women have partners who are more open to wanting to be equal partners, right? And are more of equal partners than before. How has it been for you and Pete in terms of taking care of Marco and juggling that with work and, and community and life in general? Overall, pretty good, in which I am feel so grateful and joyful about. Um, Pete is one of those uh, unicorns who um, is is very different from me in the sense of if I say, hey, Pete, you know, I need this thing to get done, he will jump up no matter what urgent thing he's working on and just get it done. And whereas for me, I'm sort of like, oh, I'm in the middle of this paragraph of a very important, you know, <laughs> presentation. Very memo. <laughs> yes, memo presentation that I'm trying to write. Like, give me five minutes. Pete's not like that at all. He's like, at any moment, family is the most important thing. And he just embodies it. It's just so clear with how he spends his energy. So for that, I am incredibly grateful. Um, and... Uh, at the same time, I think we would still get into a bunch of conflict when, you know, we had this kid running around with all of these needs that would change like week mm-hmm. on week. And we were making all of these decisions together and not knowing what load was going to come down makes it really hard to manage the load, right? Like what a kid needs when they're first born versus three months old, it's all different. And I think it's very easy to fall into that feeling of, oh, like I'm exhausted and I feel like I'm doing more. I feel like this is unfair or I just don't, I don't feel like I can take anymore. Um, And so I think that introduces a a bunch of little pieces of conflict. Um, And there are certain things at the end of the day that no matter what desire a partner has, I think the birthing parent is going to have to take on, you know, like- Mm -hmm. You just can't, yeah, the breastfeeding, the delivery, the, you know, caring, 
the pain, the recovery, you know, I think for some women, it can take three, six months more to physically recover from the experience. And, um, yeah, it's just hard for the non-birthing partner to, to take that load. So I think, you know, we, we feel much more prepared the second time around, just knowing what's coming down the pike. But one thing that we did for our friends, this is so reflective of my personality as a hyper-organized person, <laughs> is we wrote down this Google Doc of all of the things that the non-birthing partner can do. Um, mm. Like they can't wake up to breastfeed the child five times in the middle of the night. So anything that they can do, especially in those early months, like three to six months is you know, mm-hmm. probably some of the most work intensive times they should do. And so even just cataloging those things. So folks have a sense of like what is coming down the pike. And we just share that freely uh, with our I would love friends. you to share that with us. <laughs> yes. We'll send it over. Uh, it would be my joy to share this with you. You two are going to be amazing parents. Um, yeah. What about the conversations between you two? How did you kind of work through that? And was Pete always open to everything and being super helpful? Or did you, like you mentioned, I think sometimes you're tired, sometimes you're just hungry and exhausted. And we all become babies when we're underslept, <laughs> underfed, exhausted. Um, we got a couple's counselor and that okay. was very helpful. <laughs> that is a recommendation I would add because um, it turns out that facilitating healthy, caring, like safe spaces to have conversations is not easy when, to your point, you are underslept, underfed, um, stressed about, you know, keeping this thing mm-hmm. alive. Um, so that's what we did. And it was really helpful. I would recommend. Mm-hmm. Super helpful, Jenny. I really appreciate this context. I want to transition us just for a little bit back to free will and your tremendous impact. So you've raised over $5 billion for charity, but before that, let's just from first principle, why should people donate to charity? People should donate to charity, especially here in the U.S., because um, for those folks who have the ability to give, I think it is the most profound act of empathy. Um, mm-hmm. I think there is one thing which is you know, helping folks with your time, which is wonderful. I think helping folks with your presence, with your words, with listening, I think that's also wonderful. But at the end of the day, I'm a capitalist. I believe that money has power, has power to really change how people live and the freedom that they have and the experiences that they have. And so, um, I think that charitable giving is one of the most powerful things that folks can do to really give back. Yeah, I was reading recently something that really struck with me. There's this notion of I'll earn money today and I'll focus on earning money and then I'll donate later on in life. Once I have so much money, I'll give away X percent of my wealth. And there's argument that I read, which is actually quite powerful, which is the value of your money today has this amount of impact and it's unclear how much impact your dollars in 10, 20, 30 years will be. It's unclear what needs we'll have. It's unclear what solutions we would have driven to and time and money, opportunity cost, all of that, which which I found really powerful. Uh, One thing that you said just really deeply resonated with me, which is I think a lot of folks 
put off giving. Mm-hmm. Uh, like this is absolutely a good thing, but I'll do it 10 years from now when I have savings mm-hmm. and I've you know, bought my house and I've taken care of my kids and all that sort of thing. And one of the biggest arguments that I get is, well, money compounds. I can put mm-hmm. it into the stock market or my house and it will grow over time. And so it's going to be worth more in the future than it is today, even taking account, you know, discount factor, whatever else. But I think the biggest counter argument is that the impact that your dollar has also compounds. So think about a kid who um, needs funding in order to continue going to school. Um, The dollar that you give them to go to school today and the difference it's going to make in that kid's lifetime is probably far more than the compounding that your dollar is going to make in the stock market. And so, you know, being a finance person myself, I feel like that is one of the concepts that many folks who have the means to give just don't internalize as much, which is this compounding of impact over time if you can give today. So I love that you brought that topic up. I just wanted to um, yeah. share that that thought. Um, so on products, uh, Freewill offers four different products today. Um First, we have our free estate planning. So this is for absolutely anyone in America. Uh, And the vast majority of Americans don't have estate planning. So we're talking Mm -hmm. a basic will, a healthcare directive, a financial power of attorney, um, documents that are going to help the people you care about most when you are sick and unable to make decisions on your own behalf, be able to take over the reins, take care of you and, and your money and your health, But then also after you pass away, um, that your assets go to the people and causes you care the most about. So that is what estate planning is. Um, Why do most people not have that? Is it not accessible? Is it something we're not thinking about? The biggest thing that we hear in our interviews with users is, I know I have to do it. I've heard about this thing, (laughs) but it's expensive and it's complicated and it's scary. You know, I don't mm-hmm. want to think about my death. I would yeah. rather play with my kids on a Saturday. I would rather yeah. have a coffee with my best friend, which is totally reasonable. <laughs> that sounds much better um, than going to find a lawyer and being interviewed about your values and these really personal things in front of someone you don't know and having to go back multiple times, many, many hours, many, many dollars. Um that is, that's understandable. So mm-hmm. what we did with our estate planning is we tried to create the opposite of what everyone expected. So instead of complex and scary and expensive, we made it as simple as possible. No legalese, words that everyone is going to understand. We made it warm. Like you can get through this, you know, just step by step, making every step as easy as possible. And um, explaining every question so that, you know, folks aren't scared. And, and the final thing was making it free. So we ran some experiments early on at Freewell where we put up the exact same product. One was $20 and one was $0 and for estate planning. And the $20 product had 
only 5% as much uptake as the free one. And we were like, wow, you know, it really matters to folks whether this thing is free or not. So in order to increase access to the average American and make it less scary and less intimidating, we have to make it free. So, And as you're saying, it totally makes sense that this is something people are putting off. It sounds scary. I'm maybe in my 30s or 40s or 50s or whatever, and I totally don't want to think about my death. It sounds far away. I hope it doesn't happen. Uh, I'd much rather go either hang out with my friends or play with my kids or something else or rest. And then on top of that, you mean I have to pay for it? And then it's in complex language that I don't understand to make me feel stupid. Ah, like, <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> doesn't sound great. <laughs> it sounds fun. <laughs> no, not at all. So, that's one of your offerings. What are the other three? So, the other three are all tools that help people leave money to charity today. So, um, giving through stocks, giving crypto away. Um, giving uh, what's called qualified charitable distributions, which are gifts out of your IRA after you turn a certain age. All of these gifts are tax advantaged, um, meaning that if you are going to take your stock, liquidate it, and give cash to a charity, Mm. they are going to get a fraction of what they would get if you just gave them that stock directly. That's because you don't pay capital gains tax on it, that you get to take a full charitable deduction for the full amount. There are a bunch of reasons and tax implications for this, but it is by far and away the most tax efficient way to give money to charity. And so those are the tools that we spent a lot of time creating because today, if you wanted to make a stock gift, it is really, really hard and annoying. (laughs) Patrick and I started doing this in the early days. We just want to run the experiment like, okay, we know a lot about finances and tax and law. Let's go try and do this. And it took me over an hour to make a stock gift. No one is going to wait around to do that. And many people don't have a financial advisor who is going to, you know, take this off their plate. Um, So we want to make it easy for the average American to be able to make these kinds of gifts. And again, going back to my experience, having had a nonprofit, I noticed I got some of the bigger gifts from stocks. And I was reading some of the research around free will of you're seeing the average donations by form of donation. So I think it was monetary slash cash donation was about 120-ish dollars. Bequest was about almost 50K dollars. Stock was about 10K and crypto 7K. And so thanks for really removing the friction around this type of giving because it's benefiting us, it's benefiting the charities. Uh, How do you see the future of giving kind of evolving given these trends? Yeah. I mean, one of the most interesting parts of being part of a giving company is many of our greatest ideas are coming from within the company. You know, we have 200 folks now and during onboarding, we tell them that most of our next big ideas that are going to change fundraising are coming from all of you and not from me and Patrick. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of folks don't realize when they join a company that they have that power. They have that power to innovate and really invent like the future of fundraising. And so um, that's something we talk a lot about with our team. And a shout out to your life partner um, who was one of the founders of the crypto product 
Like that didn't exist until he joined forces with one of our engineers, Lakshmi, in order to kind of create it from scratch within free will. And so it's just a testament to um, how powerful it is to bring together people around a top line mission of driving a trillion dollars to charity and then helping to invent that next new thing that is going to benefit both donors and nonprofits. Totally. Shout out Marcin. Speaking of hard work, he was working a lot of hours on this. And to your point, it was just so motivating for him because of the purpose of giving back. I remember in the early days of the Ukraine war and I'm half Ukrainian and it was so personal and he just mobilized with Patrick and you and you guys launched the Ukraine giving with crypto. So really, really tremendous impact. And everyone needs to check out freewill.com. Um, but you have such an audacious goal of raising a trillion uh, dollars for charity. And I love that. Also, you've raised over $5 billion for charity. <laughs> That's huge. It is. And thank you, I guess, for saying that. Really, really changing the world. And I think there are so many ways of doing that. And it's easy to kind of throw out compliments, but not throwing this out lightly. Um, really appreciate that. I think many entrepreneurs, we will get you know caught up in all of the things that we haven't solved yet and all of the problems that are happening. And it's just so easy to forget um, right. The, right. the big story. Yeah, I think we're right. raising now something like $5 million a day for charity. Um, right. Which has been and it's cool. this kind of brick by brick, right? You're raising 5 million a day and you're focused on the day to day. And we talked about this efficiency of decision-making and not holding things up. And it's all the little, the little steps that surmount to this larger, I, I bet sometimes you peek up and you're like, wow, look how far we've come, but I'm sure it has to do with all the focus that you and the team are, are putting in place. Speaking of this focus, you're over 200 people strong now. Congratulations. Thank you. If you were to say what's contributed to your growth and success thus far, besides Patrick, your co-founder, who you adore. <laughs> yeah. I know y'all are such a, such a great, like, partnership. I know you lean on each other. Every time I speak to Patrick and I used to see him quite a bit, he lived in Austin. He raves about Jenny and how supportive Jenny is. And I know you feel similarly. That was going to be the first answer. So <laughs> I, I, um, I feel so lucky to have met Patrick, um, when we were all in business school together. Um, we are very different humans. And it still shocks me today, given how different we are, that we have such a productive um, and supportive and wonderful partnership. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we think differently, we <laughs> like work differently. Um, and to me, I think that's one of the most important parts of diversity. Like when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know, yes, people come from different backgrounds, super important, but like the implication of that is like mm. thinking differently or experiencing things differently or being able to empathize with like users differently. And like that is where the magic is made. And so in some ways, yes, it's been hard to work with someone who is maybe the opposite of the carbon copy of myself, except <laughs> for that we're both very competitive and really like games. Um, but the benefit to that has been uh, 
it's so much easier to welcome in true diversity of thought into the fold as we've grown because that's how we started. We started with, you know, things not just decisions not being made because one person says, this is my decision. It's done. We're doing it. But rather a efficient, but nonetheless negotiation around, Mm -hmm. okay, you see it this way. You see it this way. You know, share your data, share your assumptions, share the options you considered. Okay. I see how I had different data from you, or I had different assumptions. How do we figure out which assumption is correct as quickly as possible? Okay. We figured it out. We can make a decision and move forward. And I think that like foundational way of going about making decisions and um, appreciating each other as peers, even from a power perspective, right? We have the same title co-CEO, um, has been really helpful for, um, growing the company and, uh, bringing more and more ideas into the fold and making the best of, of those ideas. Um, so that's one thing. Um, the other thing that I think we've solved for, which is maybe a bit unusual is, um, low ego and, and humility. Um, Patrick and I had been doing all of the interviews for everyone joining free will for probably way too long. Like we were still doing much of the outreach and, and much of the interviews up until like maybe two years ago. Um, and one of the things we solved for was around this kind of low ego humility can you take feedback? Can we give feedback to you live during the interview? How are you going to respond to that feedback? Um, are you able to come up with examples of where you've made mistakes in the past? Do you own the pieces of it that were your responsibility? Or do you immediately go and talk about all the other factors you didn't have control over? So I think by bringing together folks who um, have those traits, it makes it a lot easier to have discussions. It makes it a lot easier to have grace for each other when we make mistakes, you know, things like that. So I would say that in addition to some brilliant ideas, you know, Patrick had the additional idea for free will. Many people at the company like Marcin have had the follow-on ideas for free will. Mm. Raising those ideas up, the best ideas is one of the biggest challenges that startups have as they grow. Um, and so these are some of the mechanisms I think that have helped us do that. Yeah. I think you brought up a profound point that I want to make sure we highlight on the two things you just described. So one about diversity and two about low ego and humility and openness on diversity. You have folks together sharing what their assumptions were, how they came to that decision and sharing notes across the board. I love the notion of we all come with different perspectives on the world that were defined by our life experiences and we all have different assumptions. And so filling the room with people that look different are different. So you mentioned you and Patrick being apart from your love of games and competitiveness (laughs) being as different as it comes in so many ways, but working so well together, because I imagine you cover each other's blind spots quite a bit. And If you expand that by 200 people, it becomes quite powerful. I know we know that the most diverse teams may appear like they have more conflict, but they're a lot more effective because of that. And 
it's so wonderful that you both prioritize that. And then the low ego, you need a low ego, right? To be able to take feedback when you're like, you're not always right. And, and so it's very, very cool that you've prioritized those two things and so clear how, how that's helped and worked in your favor. Yeah. Conflict is so important. I feel like we villainized conflict. Like we're trying to avoid or like minimize conflict. If you're not having conflict, that means that everyone thinks the exact same way. You are probably, yeah, that's scary. That's scarier than having conflict. Um, So yeah, I absolutely Um, agree. And then on this notion again of inclusion, you have crushed it, both of you, free will in general. I know you have over 50% female engineers, lots of folks struggle with this. There's all this talk about, oh, there's not enough people in the pipeline or access. And that's definitely true. I'd love to hear your take on how you got there to this equity in terms of gender. And there's also other spectrums of inclusion. So we talk about uh, sexual preference, et cetera, but how did y'all approach inclusion? Uh, It is a process. I think we've done some things well and we have a lot of room to grow, but um, we are very proud to have 50% female engineers and for, you know, half of our exec team to be um, women and for most of our promotions uh, to go to women. Like, that's really cool. Um, I would say in terms of some of those foundational blocks, um, the first 10 employees matters so much. I think mm-hmm. when entrepreneurs are under the gun, there's so much pressure in those early days. Like, oh my gosh, how am I going to find product market fit? I don't have funding. I don't have people. I don't have users. I don't have customers. Mm-hmm. Everything, <laughs> everything's on fire. It's everything's all fine. on fire. It's, everything's fine. <laughs> exactly. Um, s- believing that a true top priority for your company at that point is building a diverse team is hard. (laughs) It's hard. It's another fire. And uh, I think the truly successful entrepreneurs who have a diverse and inclusive environment at 100, 200 people believed that it was a fire from the very beginning Um, because you can't fake it. You know, you can't fake that foundation and there are compounding effects. So, For example, in the early days when we were hiring engineers, I would interview 40, 50 people per person that we hired. That is a ton of time. I'm like scheduling my own interviews, doing all of the interviews, you know, and and it's um, basically my entire week is just interviewing when I could be, you know, uh, being a better product manager or whatever else. But it was important to us. And therefore, we were able to, in the early days, I think, have that ratio And since then, you know, our female engineers have had such a great experience on the team. They recommend their friends. They are so genuine when they talk to um, other female engineers who are applying, when they ask, like, what's your experience? What's it like? It's almost like this mystical experience of being somewhere where bro culture is not the main engineering culture. And to be able to share that genuinely is the thing that keeps more people coming, right? You just can't fake it. So, um that's what I guess I would encourage other entrepreneurs who are thinking about this to do, even if it might feel like just one more fire. Um, it should yeah. feel that way, I guess. Um, in terms of areas to improve, though, I mean, to your point, there's so many axes of intersectionality. And 
um, of identity and what identity matters to someone the most. You have no idea. I mean, I am a uh, Chinese American daughter of immigrants um, from the Pacific Northwest um, who has certain, you know, values and any of these identities could be a thing that really defines my values or the ways that I think, but they also might not be. So mm-hmm. I think um, the the thing that we have worked on since then is um, pick your focuses, pick your battles from the very beginning. For us, I think it was very much like gender inclusion. And then when you feel like that engine is working, keep going, right? Like you can always do better. We this past year, we're challenged by some of our employees to be better about inclusion around disabilities and thinking about neurodiversity. Um, and that was something where we were like, we haven't put attention on this historically. That is okay in the spirit of focus, but this is going to be something that we focus on now and that's okay. So I think just approaching this like everything else, having the humility, being focused and making sure that you care about it from the very beginning um, are probably some of the things. Yeah. Having done interviews myself, 40 interviews, 40 to 50 per one person you're hiring, that is a lot. And I respect that focus. It's That's a lot for anyone who interviews people. So you can see how just really prioritizing it is what made the difference. And you got to put in the work to get the output. Totally. Have you seen a difference in women and men and how they lead? I think each individual is different. Mm. So you have every individual is different. So I feel like it's very unfair to say, oh, this is how Jenny leads versus this is how Patrick leads. And this is a representation of women and men. And you are co-CEOs, which is wonderful. We're seeing more of those come up. So great that you're paving the way. But as you look at your organization, what sticks out to you? Uh, There are definitely patterns. (laughs) Mm. Um, And I ask this because I speak to women for instance, who want to enter entrepreneurship, Jenny. And I just notice so much more hesitation among women that I mm. speak to versus men. Um, and so to me, I'm figuring out what is it about, for instance, how women think. I think women maybe may want to be more sure of something before they pull the trigger. Um, and just curious kind of across the subset of people that you manage, whether you're, what patterns you're uncovering. Yeah. Definitely confidence gap. That is the number one, exactly to your point, Jen. Um, Wanting more data, more consensus before making a decision. And as we talked about earlier, the speed of decision-making is make or break for a startup. So um, that is a pattern that I've seen that usually I try and break a little. You know, Mm. what would happen if you made a a bad decision here. Like what are the consequences? Talk me through that. Um, And it turns out, you know, there are reversible decisions and irreversible decisions. Let's not experiment on the irreversible decisions, but let's experiment on those reversible decisions, right? Let's try and make this decision a little faster and see how things go. And by and large, women have as good, if not better, of intuition and critical reasoning that's going to help them make the same decisions that men are going to make anyway. So um, just increasing that speed, I think, is going to actually increase confidence over time. You know, you start getting used to it, of making bets and those bets being right. If you only make five bets, and yes, they all go right, that's different from the feeling of making 50 bets 
and seeing 48 of them go right. You know, confidence builds on itself. So I think confidence is definitely one of them. And it, it does seem like this is more speculation. I have less confidence in this, but maybe it seems like part of it comes from this desire to be liked, this desire mm. to um, right. make sure that everyone else is going to see you, appreciate you, all those sort of things. And uh, I think my encouragement for female leaders is the ultimate thing that someone is going to respect, regardless of their gender or the background, is the outcomes that you're able to achieve. So mm-hmm. do the things to get the outcomes and you are going to feel better about that. Um, and everyone else is going to respect you for that. So even if that is your motivation, um, that's fine, but center it towards um, those outcomes. And I think it's a much more sustainable strategy than wanting everyone yeah. to like your micro decision. Um, the other thing that I've noticed is I actually think, oh, maybe this is a hot take, but the female (laughs) leaders are on average better managers. Yeah. I was going to say, what's the flip side? Like, what are women better at? Yeah. Um, I mean, great management is very similar to great leadership. How do you make the most of the people around you? How do you make the most of the people on your team? And I think that the emotional awareness that we all somehow walk around with from the moment that we come out of the womb, like I observe this in my son, he's 16 months old and his peers, the baby girls, they're watching right? They're watching and they're listening and they're absorbing and their awareness of what is going around them is so high. It turns out that is so helpful as a manager, right? Mm -hmm. You are listening, you are absorbing what makes this person tick, what is happening around them, what are all the pressures that they're facing? And then putting together that awareness with a deep empathy and being able to approach folks in that way to make the, the best of their abilities and I've seen that be so effective. Um, so yeah, I've, I've loved witnessing that. And I think very similarly to how I coach my, you know, female leaders, I coach my male or male identifying leaders. Like, you know, these are also skills that you can have and that will make you a better manager. And it turns out to run a big company, you need retention. What is the number one reason why people leave companies? They're managers. So you they have to be these are jobs. They leave their bosses. Exactly. Right. You have to be a good manager to be a good leader. So let's work on that because that's going to like fundamentally change your ability to succeed as a leader. So resonated with that. At least from my experience, I am absorbing a ton and just receptors, receptors are open, 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 open. Uh, and I wonder if that's a little bit of what slows us down in terms of decision-making or feeling like, oh, there's all these things happening and going on. And there's definitely things we can learn from men, men can learn from women. And I love the notion of we can work together to be an even stronger team back to this notion of diversity. I wanted to talk a little bit about relationships. I think human connection is something that's really important to both of us. And I really resonate with you on this notion of People are the most important thing in professional life, in personal life. And I know you've mentioned that some of your hardest challenges building free will have been people management, particularly needing to fire people. 
I think this will be tremendously useful for us to hear about. So can you speak to how you've had to approach making those decisions and then also repairing those relationships and on this notion of women caring about maybe what people think and really caring about these relationships, how you are working on processing that for yourself? Oof. Uh, <laughs> still working on it, but this is yeah. such an important topic to your point, Jen. Um, I, uh, think that the startup wisdom of hire slow, fire fast is totally correct. Um, if you're trying to build a high performing organization, imagine being a high performer in an organization and having to work with folks who, you know, you know, are getting paid as much as you are and who aren't doing the work or don't, aren't getting the outputs or are kind of constantly the barrier to decisions moving forward um, that you think will be best for the company. It's grading and it brings, I think, the overall morale of the team down. And so I think just addressing that as soon as possible is so important for building these healthy, thriving, high-performing organizations. And it's a struggle because that feels so cold to say, right? Because there's a real individual at the end of being fired who has maybe family obligations, who has, you know, maybe themselves to support, other folks to support. Um, and that salary really matters to them at the end of the day. So I think being able to at once hold intention, that deep empathy for this individual, that also what you need to do in order to get that end outcome in the high-performing organization, I think that's hard for any leader. Um, and it's definitely been hard for me. Um, I remember there was a time when I had let someone go um, when they told me, you are the worst manager and leader that I've ever had. You are making a huge mistake. You are going to regret this. Um, and, you know, basically I, I can't believe you would do this to like the team and the My company. Goodness. It was it's interesting because I'm already feeling so defensive of you. I want to just be like, <laughs> well, that just tells me that this was the right call here. <laughs> um, yeah, I like it was really, really hard to hear. Um, but so whatever anyone might be imagining what they might hear after firing someone, like it can't be worse than that, right? Like it's yeah. it's um, somewhere around those lines. And, you know, actually like a year or two later, the same person came back to me and they apologized. They said, you know, like that was a really hard moment for, you know, me and my family. And I just wanted to let you know, like the way that I behaved was, was totally unacceptable. And I actually now being in a new position, that's a different position. And one that fits my skill sets a lot better, like I understand why you did it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I mean, it was a huge relief for me, right? Um, and we yeah. do everything we can in order to make sure someone lands on their feet. I think we really believe in when you fire someone, you fire them kindly. You help them look for other job opportunities. You write the references in a way where like you highlight the things they are strong at because everyone has mm -hmm. strengths. It just might not yeah. be the right role at the right time. Um, and for this person to have landed on their feet, to be in a position where they felt like they were thriving more and the position that they were in and I come around was just, it felt so good. Yeah. And it's not to say like everyone has come back and said that, you know, like, um, but uh, I think it is more likely than not 
um, certainly in these economic times where like actually jobs for, for example, tech is still, you know, are still competitive. Um, mm -hmm. It's better for someone to end up in a job that's a better fit for their skills. And to remember that I think helps. Yeah. And I think we all want to be good at whatever we're doing. No one loves not being great at their job. And in so many of these cases, you're firing them kindly. You're, you're being kind by saying, Hey, you know what, this isn't the best fit. And in that individual's scenario, that particular example, they were going through a really hard time. Maybe just didn't know how to express themselves. It's obviously disappointing. We all, we all express ourselves differently, but I think in many cases, people are happy to be told, you know what, actually here, why don't we transition you out? And it's a relief to them. And I think to your point of firing them kindly, taking care of them, writing references, you can build a relationship that way. On the personal note, earlier in this conversation, we talked about you wanting to connect with women in your life. How are you building your community to balance out your just Jenny's time? Jenny as a mom, Jenny as co-CEO of Free Will, Jenny as Jenny. Haha <laughs> is -ha. <laughs> my response to that. There, there isn't a ton of balance, um, but I do believe that, you know, you can focus and be good at some of these roles in any period of your time. And I think if I could do it again, the thing I would have done differently is before having the child and being focused on like work and mom as my main roles, I think I would have made sure to situate myself in a community Um where I had time to invest and build those relationships um, because it does take time, especially as adults. I think, you know, we don't have grad school or college or like these other times where you are in intense, close contact frequently to make these deep friendships where you have affinity is, um, I, I think adult friendships are hard to make and we don't talk about that oftentimes. Um, yeah. So there is this period of time when your kid is between like born and maybe three or four where they're mostly at home. They aren't doing activities. I think that's, yeah. that's a hard time to make friends. So I guess I would say, um, in some ways I'm just kind of trying to get by and like invest what I can in friendships, but knowing that it's not going to be, you know, like the friendship that I have with you or like some of the other folks from that I met throughout my life, but that there is a, a, you know, bright light at the end of the tunnel that when my kid turns three or four, they're going to be in all these activities. I'll have, again, this excuse to meet these amazing women in my life, bring them into my life frequently. And yeah, yeah I think until then I wait and focus on the other things. Yeah. And one thing that really helps for me at least is having regularly scheduled calls, especially to your point where not being in college or school anymore, where you're seeing people randomly like this random encounters or passing by, but now you need to be more intentional is just having a scheduled call with someone at whatever cadence works for your schedules and then taking those on a walk 
uh, and having it be really chill, no pressure, whenever we can, we can make it. And those have been so precious to me. Uh, speaking of precious, you're so precious to me. I'm so grateful that you could come and I loved this so much. Felt like a warm blanket for me. Me too. You're going to send me this list of things to get marching to do, get them <laughs> prepped and ready. <laughs> From now, get them trained. <laughs> for his responsibilities as a future dad. You can never start him too early, right? 100%. That's what I hear. <laughs> Amazing. Before we wrap up, I want to get you on power hour. So we have some rapid fire questions to get to know Jenny through and through. Are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> All right. We touched on this a little bit, but what are the three crucial routines that you keep? Mm. Um, walking under trees mm -hmm. um and eating something with color and oh, with color like a colorful piece of food meaning like fruits or vegetables not all okay cheerios between right. meetings uh <laughs> and um cuddles before sleep Oh, I love cuddling. I love Who cuddling. Do you cuddle with with Marco and Pete. Uh, ideally, both, but oh, sometimes me too, Jenny. it's just Pete, and he is like busy doing something, and I just go to him and I say, "I, I need a cuddle before bed." And like I said earlier, he's there. Yeah, yeah. I I love it. I love Pete for it, Jenny. I my love language is touch, and it's almost like. I recharge my battery with cuddling. <laughs> <laughs> it's like plugging you in. <laughs> it's so true. And basically, I'm sad to admit this, but you know what? It's great. I own it. It's awesome. I, I make Marcin come sleep with me every night. He'll be like, oh, I'm still working. i like, it's okay. You wake up early and finish. <laughs> I need to cuddle. <laughs> no shame, girl. That is awesome. Yeah. Know your oh, needs. I Get them that. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I love, and I could tell cause like I, we saw each other this weekend and I was almost like, cause I was holding your hand and it's, I just feel so connected with people mm. through touch. And I, I remember telling Martin after I was like, I feel like I was too touchy at this meeting and it's post COVID <laughs> people are like, maybe it's weird. And he's like, no, own it. So I love, I love that you're a cuddler. Mm. Uh, all right. Your guilty pleasure, Jenny. Uh, binge watching Netflix. What show are you into these days? Oh, I'm embarrassed. Bling Empire. Oh, I watched a couple <laughs> episodes of that. It's good. It's good. Yeah, it's, it's really bad. It's good. good. It's good. Sad. Bad. It's sad. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Oh, man. Um, we, I'm rewatching Game of Thrones because mm. my husband has never seen <gasps> Game of Thrones. And... Uh, I will share because you were so kind in sharing. We watched on Sunday four episodes back to back to back because <laughs> we just couldn't stop. We're like, we can't stop it. It's so good. <laughs> it's excellent. Uh, all right. And fill in the blank for me. Blank is guaranteed to make you happy besides cuddling and walking under trees. Hmm. Ice cream. Ooh, what flavor? Coffee. Ooh. Why? Is it the taste of coffee or you, does it wake you up at all? I don't drink coffee, but I worked as a barista mm. at Starbucks as my first job. And sometimes I joke that if I wasn't working at Free Will, I would be a barista again. I love the oh. smell. It's so cozy. 
I love the smell too. All right. When was the last time you were really proud of yourself? Oh, hmm. I put Mark to sleep without him crying last night. It is. Wonderful. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's really great. You're in your thirties, Jenny. What do you know for sure? I have been lucky and Mm -hmm. my job in life is to help those who have not been as lucky. I really resonate. It's really powerful. And my last one, what matters most to you and why? Oh, when we applied for grad school, I wrote fairness. And I think that's changed. That's great. It's great to change. Um, Because fairness is complicated and Mm -hmm. there's some implications of fighting for fairness that are also a little tough. Um, So I think the thing that matters to me most and why is right now, Mm -hmm. I think it's my family. Yeah, that's wholesome. And that's so true. It's just true. Wish I had a more interesting answer. It's very interesting. I think for a power woman who's raising trillions for charity and also a mom and wife and daughter and sister, that family is the most important thing. I think it speaks volumes and that's a wonderful way to end. Thank you so much, Jenny. Thanks, Jen. Yay.